Well, good morning again. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21. And let's begin in verse 1. As John writes, he says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will, uh, will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters, And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we come to one of the most glorious chapters in all the Bible. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would just encourage our hearts and give us a hope that can withstand any of the difficulties in which we may experience here in this life. Father, help us to look up and to look forward to what you are going to do next. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I think all of us have heard at one time or another the expression, oh, this is just a little taste of heaven on earth. Oh, maybe you've gone to your favorite vacation spot. You're overlooking the beautiful horizon of the ocean. You're seeing that glorious sunset. You're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. One more step and you'll see heaven personally, okay? Maybe you've just had an exquisite meal and you've just said to yourself, oh, this is just a little taste of heaven. I think all of us have said that. And if you think about it, it's one of the best compliments that we can pay our personal experience. Either that being what we see or a piece of music that is just so wonderfully architected and played that we hear, or even something that we taste. And yet for believers in Jesus Christ, we often have to be reminded that we will experience heaven on earth. Now, we come to the last two chapters of the book of Revelation together. These two chapters are truly the climax of the entire book. Now, you may be surprised to hear me say that. You may think, well, no, I thought it was Revelation 19 and the return of Jesus. Well, that's certainly a highlight. 
But remember, God's plan went past Christ's return. As we've been looking at the book of Revelation together, we began by seeing who Jesus is. We then saw Jesus address seven churches. We then had a glimpse in chapters 4 and 5 of what heaven and the throne room of God is actually like. Then we proceeded into one of the darkest periods of time, if I may say the darkest period of time that the human race will ever see, the seven years of tribulation. Then we saw the glorious return of Jesus Christ. We reigned with Him after His return for a thousand years. But what happens next is the true climax of all that God started in and through the, His Son Christ, His Son Jesus Christ. It should be the greatest source of our hope. And yet for many Christians, it isn't. For many Christians seem to desire the satisfactions of this world. They looked for God to satisfy those satisfactions, asking God to simply bless them with every material blessing that they can have, to enjoy perfect health, to have a perfect family and perfect relations. And yet the Bible never promises that. For the Bible says that while we walk through this earth, we will have tribulation. While we walk through this world, we will have troubles, trials, and tribulations. But he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, for us to truly appreciate these next two chapters, we must have an eternal mindset. We are not simply seeking our own personal temporal comforts here and now. And please, don't get me wrong. When I say that, I am not negating the beautiful promises that God has made to us through His Word. The promises to be with us and to never leave us nor forsake us. The promises of peace that surpasses all understanding. The promise of an unconditional love. The promise of Him supplying all and providing all of our needs. Those are glorious, blessed promises that He has given for us to enjoy now. But this is not our home. We are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, which I'm going to address and help you discover in the next couple of weeks. Chuck Swindoll summed up the entire book of Revelation with this little statement, out with the old and in with the new. And that's exactly what this is. Now, one pastor asked the question, does the church still today enjoy the hope of heaven? Does it still mean as much to people today as it once did? Let us remember that we must put ourselves in the position and the place of the individuals that were receiving and reading John's letter for the very first time. In this period of time in church history, the church was under a really heavy wave of persecution. They were hunted. They were imprisoned. They were killed. They were tortured. And this would have comforted their hearts, knowing that they could lose their life at any moment, knowing that heaven awaited them. 
But we don't have those pressures of persecutions in our country at the moment. It's not to say that we never will. There's a lot happening in our world. And yet, we seem to have lost this hope of heaven. I want to read this statement as this pastor discovered for himself as he looked at this and asked this question of others. He says, sadly, that's no longer true for many in the, today's church. Caught up in our own society's mad rush for instant gratification, material comfort, and narcissistic indulgence, the church has become worldly. Nothing more graphically demonstrates that worldliness than the current lack of interest in heaven. The church doesn't sing or preach much about heaven. Believers seldom discuss it. Songs are no longer written about it, and books about heaven are few and far between. Believers who do not have heaven on their minds trivialize their lives, hinder the power of the church, and become absorbed with the fading things of this world. It is my hope that today that we will once again have this hope of heaven, and that you and I will be comforted and able to stand against any difficulty that we encounter and face and experience here on this earth, knowing that heaven waits for you and I. For Jesus is about to make not a sequel, but a remake of heaven and earth exactly the way he desires it to be. Let's take a look at verse 1 and 2 together. John writing, he says, Now I saw, notice that, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there is no more sea. John begins to describe this new heaven and new earth. Now the word new in the Greek is a word that doesn't represent something old being restored to something somewhat new again. It's not a restoration, and it really isn't a recreation. It's more aptly defined as a transformation. He is going to create a new heaven and a new earth that has never been touched or stained by sin and death. We can't even relate to that, can we? Our, mot- our mortality is evident in our life and in our world. We are reminded of it continuously. And yet the new heavens and the new earth, this transformed, this remake, if you will, this new heaven and earth will never have the remnants of sin and death upon it in any way, shape, or form. This is what we look forward to. Now, he says there's going to be no more sea. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was kind of bummed. I like the ocean. I like the beach, okay? I like long walks on the beach. Dogs, animals, and fine music. I like the beach, But the sea throughout the book of Revelation represented more than just a body of water. One of the most terrifying experiences for an individual was to travel the seas at that time. 
In some places in Revelation, the sea represented Gentile nations, as it does also in the Old Testament. There are other places, though, that people standing and looking upon the sea see a formidable traveling experience that really brings their mortality to mind. Are we going to survive this? Are we going to make it to the other side? Now, we don't think about that as much when we travel by car, by train, or by plane. And yet, on Friday, my sister was driving through Elk Grove. She still lives in Elk Grove. And she saw all of these fire trucks, ambulances, and police cars flying into Bussy Woods, where I walk and I, Dean and I go out and uh, spend an afternoon or an evening together. And so my sister, being the curious person that she is, of course, has to get into the middle of it all. And so she follows them in there. And she parks alongside and she's looking to see what has occurred. Because you don't normally see that. Trucks were coming from various villages and towns from all around for a plane crash Friday. I don't know, did you hear it? A plane crashed, a small plane crashed in Bussy Woods. My sister is seeing that and she's FaceTiming us as we're sitting at home and she's taking her phone around and she's interviewing people. What did you see? How did it go? What, is there any you know, survivors? Is there any fatalities? You know. And I said to her jokingly, I said, you know what? You should go around to the other side, walk through the woods and see if you can get pictures of the plane. Guess what she did? As I'm sitting there, all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up. It's her climbing through the trees, getting and seeing the pictures of the, very, of the plane and sending them to me, taking a video of it. And she wasn't the only one doing it. What had happened is that the plane traveling from Iowa to Chicago ran out of gas. Never thought that they weren't going to quite make it to O'Hare Field. We don't think about these things, but in that culture, the sea often represented more danger, uh, evil, and separation in their traveling pursuits, meaning that our journey through this world, we're surrounded by evil, aren't we? There's dangers, and we feel sometimes separated from God. And guess what's going to be eliminated in the new heavens, in the new earth? There'll be no more evil, there'll be no more danger, and there'll be no more separation from God. And he makes it clear that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, ceased to exist, over and done. Again, this is not a, re a recreation. It is not a renovation. It is a complete transformation. God is making something new. This world as we know it will no longer exist. Heaven as we know it will no longer exist. For a new heaven and a new earth will exist. I think of the psalmist when he wrote in Psalm 102, 25 through 27, he says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is passing away. 
As we used to say back in the 80s, it's all going to burn. So why then do we invest our hearts and affections upon the, the world and the things of this world, knowing that they are passing away before us? For Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 65, 17 and 18 when he wrote, For behold, this is God speaking, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. In Isaiah 66, 22 to 23, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your, your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from the new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship before me, says the Lord. Peter spoke of this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-13. through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, he asked the question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our hope for heaven. In Romans, Paul wrote when he said, in verses 18 through 23, it should be on the screen behind me, let me read them for you. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory with what we shall receive in us. For the earnest ex expectations of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We are looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. When we die today, if we were to die today, we would go to heaven and be with the Lord. But that's a layover. There's a new heaven and a new earth awaiting for us. And it's that in which we are discovering this morning. But not only that, notice with me in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this city has been anticipated by God's people from the time in which the Bible was written. This city adorned as a bride waiting for her husband was to show the purity of this city, that the, the city was unstained with anything unclean. It was pure. It was without sin, without death. Now, the description of the city we are going to look at next week together, but this morning I simply introduce it to you. 
But this had been anticipated. Let me read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Paul wrote about this in Galatians. He says in Galatians 4.26, But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all of us. And in Philippians 3.20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to himself. In Revelation at the beginning, we were promised this in Revelation 3, 12 through 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write him the, uh, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write him on my new name and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this anticipated city, this eternal dwelling, in complete and utter purity, is revealed at this moment. And in verse 3, it goes from what John had seen to now what John hears. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and he shall be his, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and their God. From the very beginning of creation, it was God's desire to be with us. Know that. It was God's desire to be with us. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and they realized their nakedness before God, killing the animals to cover themselves, Notice that God then went through the garden, seeking them out, calling out to them and saying, Adam, where are you? Now, I want to take a moment to tell you that there is a context that we need to consider when understanding and interpreting God's Word. That context is the context of tonality. The context of tonality. Pastor Eric, what do you mean by that? I cannot tell you how many times I have been heard pastors teach from that portion of Scripture. And when they come to that verse of God simply calling out to Adam and Eve, it's always, if not, mo if not almost always, portrayed like this. After Adam and Eve sinned and tried to cover themselves, God went throughout the garden seeking them. Adam, where are you? And they cowered in fright. Really? Is that what the Bible says? There is nothing in the Hebrew to indicate that that was the tonality of God's voice. Or did God simply seek them out, showing that later on in the New Covenant, it would be God who seeks us out in and through the person of Jesus Christ, calling to us not as an angry father, but a loving father. Where are you? I love you. It is interesting to me that when Jesus spoke of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son was the representation of God. I'm sorry. The, prodigal, the father of the prodigal son was the representation of God. When he saw the son returning, 
Did he stand on the porch and yell at his son? No. He ran to his son. He embraced his son. He reclothed his son. He put sandals on his feet, a a cloak about him, restored to him the position of the family, loved him. No, I believe the tonality of God's voice was one of a loving father knowing the seriousness of the offense and calling us back to him. Where are you? Where are you? I believe that's consistent with the manner in which Jesus Christ presented God the Father to those who did not know Him. The only ones that Jesus rebuked, if you notice, are the religious leaders and the one apostle who had the gift of foot and mouth. Did you ever notice that? It was the religious leaders in whom Jesus rebuked for their hypocrisy, and Peter But yet, in his rebuke of Peter, it wasn't for his destruction. It was for his restoration. Because later, Peter became a pillar of the church in the book of Acts. Let us understand that God loves us. He sent his only begotten son because he loves us. And he knew that the sin that Adam and Eve created at that moment separated him from them. And from that moment forward, it was God's desire to once again dwell with us. In the tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies in which only Moses could enter at certain times. Okay? And it was separated from all of the people. Again, demonstrating the separation of God from His people due to sin. That carried on into the temple, right? There was this huge curtain that separated God from His people. It wasn't until the crucifixion of Christ that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. But remember what John says, that he saw that in Jesus, that dwelling of God amongst his people was once again being reestablished. Remember it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, Uh, resided among us. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no more separation. There is no more distance. And God and His people dwell together as He always intended it to be. That is the heart of our God. That is the heart of our Father. He wants to be with you. And He makes that possible in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But right now, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, through 20, Or you do not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, and you have from God, and you are not of your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19-22, through 22, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, even though the Spirit of God dwells in us, let us be real. I still cannot fellowship with God in the true manner and desire that I want to because of my fallen nature. But in the new heavens and the new earth, in the moment that I leave this body and I'm brought before my God, I will no longer be limited by the flesh in my interaction and intimacy with my God. I will fully be able to know Him as I am known. And no longer will be, there will be that veil of separation. Now notice with me in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. In 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle at the end, in chapter 12, talks about an individual that was taken to the third heaven. Now, I believe that was Paul speaking of himself. I believe the third heaven represented the heaven in which God dwells, the first heaven being the atmosphere of the earth, the second being the space in which, of course, is on top of our atmosphere, and third heaven being the third heaven where God dwells. When he went to describe it verbally, he couldn't. And I see John's limitation here also. And the best way for him to present this to us is by reminding us of what's no longer there. Check that out. Listen, it is too majestic for me to try to uh, simplify it and contain it in human language, but let me tell you what's not there. And can you imagine the the persecuted church at this time reading this letter as they're hiding, fearing for their lives, fearing for their families, and reading these words that God will wipe away every one of their tears? How encouraging would that be And that there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's how he gives us a glimpse into the new heavens and the new earth, by what is no longer there. It also shows me that all of these things that he lists here are a result of the fall of man. Can you imagine a world with no more death, no more pain, no more suffering? Can you imagine a world where there is no more sickness, there is no more persecution, there is no more injustice, there's no more corruption? It's all gone. That is the world in which we look forward to. There are 12 things missing. There's no more sea, Because there's no more chaos and calamity. It's all been eradicated. There are no more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. No more crying because the sound of weeping will be soothed. No more pain because all human suffering will be cured. No more thirst because God will graciously quench all desires. No more wickedness because all evil will be banished. No more temple because the Father and Son are personally present with us as we will discover. 
No more night because God's glory will give eternal light. No more closed gates because the door of God's house is always open to us. And no more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse once and for all. I like what Warren Worsby wrote when he said, he said the eternal city is so wonderful that the best way John found to describe it was by contrast in the statement, no more. The believers who first read this inspired book must have rejoiced to know that in heaven there would be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrows, no more death, for many of their number had been tortured and slain. In every age, the hope of heaven has encouraged God's people in times of suffering. And notice with me in verse 5. And then he, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Notice with me God's confidence. There is no doubt in God's mind that these things will come about. The term it is done is one that you should highlight. If you are one of those who likes to defile your Bible, I say that jokingly, highlight it, underline it, and let people know that what Christ had started on the cross as he declared it is finished, tetelestai in Greek, bought and paid for, What he started for then, that beginning has now come to its crescendo, it's come to its end, and it is now done. Everything that he started at that moment is now completed. It is now finished for you and I. As one wrote, he said it could be literally translated, they have become, it has become. Right now, it's a work in progress. But at that moment, it shall be done, and we can be confident of it. I want to show you a verse in Ecclesiastes 3.15. It's a fascinating verse. And I'm going to show it to you in a version of the Bible called the New English Translation. I think the New English Translation is one of the most accurate translations of the Bible. And notice that in the New English, uh, English Translation, whatever exists now has already been. And whatever will be has already been. For God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past. Fascinating verse. What does it all mean? In other words, when God says something will be done, it will be done exactly as he said. There will be a new earth one day, perhaps nearer than we have imagined, and it will happen and you can take that to the bank. As Chuck Swindoll said, he said, when God declares it is done, however, he is pointing forward to a permanent condition that has fully arrived. Moreover, the Holy Spirit led John to use this perfect uh, uh, inductive tense, verify, uh, verify that God's promises are secure, to verify that God's promises are secure. He can express things yet future 
as completed events with enduring results. Meaning that if God says it's going to be done, it is going to be done because it is already done. I'll let you think about that for a while. But that's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. As again he went on, think about it. No more terminal disease, hospitals, wheelchairs, or funerals. No more courts or prisons. No more divorces, breakdowns, or breakups. No more heart attacks, strokes, Alzheimer's, or debilitating illness. No more therapists, medications, or surgeries. No famines, no plagues, no devastating disasters. He will make all things brand new. There's a great story of one of my heroes, D.L. Moody. As many of you know, D.L. Moody has always been one of my heroes. And after the great Chicago fire in 1871, did you know Moody's house was completely destroyed by the fire? He went back to his home to see if there was anything left. And as he approached, someone who knew of him asked him and said to him, I didn't know, uh, I, I didn't realize that you had lost everything and that there was nothing left. And Moody said to him, you're wrong. I have a good deal more left than I have lost and the friend asked him, well, I didn't realize you were rich. He says, oh, sir, I am not rich. But the Bible tells me that he who hath overcome shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. That's what Moody looked forward to. It wasn't the things of this earth. It was the things that were promised to him that Christ and Christ alone could give him. In 1 John 5, 4 through 5, John writes, the same John who wrote Revelation, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As one wrote in conclusion, he said, This is the culmination of all things that the Bible has put forward. It is the grand finale, the tour de force, the magnum opus, the masterpiece work, the piece of resistance. This is when the new heaven and the new earth become one glorious reality and we enter into it. We will live in this eternal state forever and ever and ever with our Lord. Amen. But there is a warning. Notice verse 8 with me. But the cowardly, the unbelieving the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sources, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All of those who don't believe, all of those who commit horrendous evil, murderers, sexually immoral people, and of course these are all apart from Christ, those who unbelieve, is the... Um, major statement of this list. Sorcerers, pharmakia. It is a word that we get our word pharmacy from. It is individuals who use drugs to tap into the spiritual world. Guys, can I just say something to you? Can I ask you to pray for the inner cities of the United States of America? Have you seen these areas of our cities in America with these poor people on drugs that look like zombies? It is horrific. Talk about hell. 
These people are dying. They're being destroyed. There's a new drug that is a combination of a horse tranquilizer and fentanyl called Trank. In the streets of Philadelphia, I believe it's the Kensington area, there are needles all over the street. And every night they go through and clean it up. And by the next day, the needles have all returned again. These people are bent over. They can't even stand up straight. They're walking down the road like a zombie. They're walking in the middle of traffic, not knowing that their life is in danger due to the vehicles passing by. This, these are the inner cities of our nation. Folks, this is horrific. Satan is destroying people's lives and we act often as we don't care because it's not happening in my backyard. But it is. Idolaters, those who worship something other than God. And all liars, and no, in the Greek it's not synonymous with politician. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and fire. The book of Genesis begins with the Son created. In the book of Revelation, the Son is no longer needed. In the book of Genesis, Satan is victorious. In the book of Revelation, Satan is defeated. In the book of Genesis, sin enters into the human race. In the book of Revelation, sin is banished. In the book of Genesis, people run and hide from God, but in the book of Revelation, people are invited to live with God forever. In Genesis, people are cursed. In Revelation, the curse is removed. Tears are shed with sorrow from sin in Genesis, and all sin, tears, and sorrow are gone in Revelation. The garden and the earth cursed, but in Revelation, God's city is glorified and the earth is made new. In Genesis, paradise is lost and it's regained in the book of Revelation. People are doomed to death. In the book of Genesis, death is defeated. The believers live forever with God. Amen and amen. Now, I want to leave you with something. It's something to think forward and think, oh, that's going to be amazing when it finally arrives. But let me give you something to go home with today. Something that's happening right here and right now. Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 in closing. I want you to see this for yourself. Because even though the new heavens and the new earth are still future, there's something happening right here and now that you need to be aware of. And if you will see it and understand it, it will generate incredible hope, comfort, and peace in your heart this morning. Immediately. Because that culmination of all that God is do, going to do in the new heavens and the new earth that we are prepared to enter has already began. And you are personally part of it. If you are a Christian here today, let me encourage you that that work that will finally uh, uh, culminate and complete in the new heaven and new earth has already started in your 
life today. Notice what he says here in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a Christian, he is a new what? Creation. The same word is used there. New. You're being transformed. You're new in Christ. You are set free from the old life to live in the freedom of the new life. You are freed from the bondage of sin. You are freed from the hold of death. You have a new life in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. And you are being prepared for what God is yet going to do. It's happening already in our lives. And notice, to further it, for old things have passed away. There's that same term that we just read in Revelation. They cease to exist. Now we still remember them and we still deal with them in the sense of the fact that the flesh is contained here with us. But in God's eyes, the work is already being done in you. Old things have passed away. Now all things are becoming brand new. It's already started. Which then leads to the conclusion that I want you and I to understand each and every day that you and I mingle about the society around us. In our lives, they should be experiencing a glimpse of heaven. They should be experiencing a glimpse of the new life. They should be experiencing in us what it looks like when God starts working in a person's life, when God saves a person, when we come together collectively as a church and we're led in the worship and we're talking about the Word of God, we should be enjoying a glimpse of what is to come. I am convinced that if we can give those around us a glimpse of this, I am convinced that if we can love one another as Christ loved us, the world would be battering down the door of the church. So even though we look forward to what God is going to do, and it gives us great hope to do so, let us know that that work has already begun, and it's begun in you. Amen?